You are listening to Pastor John Castile's sermon, Saved by Grace, from the 1045 AM service, recorded on April 7th, 1991. Open your Bibles, please, if you would, to John chapter 3, where we'll begin reading. I want to especially thank you and echo the thanks that Alan and Donna gave you about uh, helping last week with the Neal Memorial. Such a difficult situation for the family. Not just the loss of one person, but literally the uh, loss of five beloved people. And earlier in the day, I was privileged, Dave Rhodes and I, Marguerite and Judy, went out and uh, helped them through the graveside service. And it was such a difficult time. Um, but we were so blessed as we came back into this building a little later in the day, and it was covered with a canopy of praise and worship, and there was a joy in the Lord. There was an underlying uh, comfort of the Spirit, that even though many of the family don't worship the way we do and don't quite understand some of the things that George and Debbie stood for, they stayed for almost two hours after the ceremony after the memorial service, pardon me, and enjoyed the reception that you put on and were enabled there to have all of their friends greet them and talk with them and share with them. And they were lifted by your love. And I want to really thank you for that. This church acted like a body. We reacted in loving kindness to them and you sacrificially worked. I came in Tuesday evening and late at night Uh, Some of the maintenance crew were working over after hours, painting and cleaning up and trying to make the place especially nice. There were volunteers down cleaning windows and there were people preparing things. And then all day Wednesday, it was the same. And uh, we'll never know how much that meant to them. But uh, I especially thank you. God would teach us how to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I feel that you responded very well. And I'm just really, I was really proud of you as a church. And I believe the Lord let us leave a message of the gospel in the hearts of lots of people that in no other way would have heard the joyful, powerful message of Jesus' love and grace for their lives. So I would like to just thank you for that again and, and tell you how proud I am of you. Brother Arjamiro was able to come in. He was with us in first service. Uh, He's with the family. <clears throat> was unable to get here for the memorial, but is extremely stricken and touched with this, their need. And we need to pray for the family as they continually talk over and share and that the Holy Spirit will continue to work for them. Many of them came to the early service this morning to just uh, participate in what George and Debbie lived for. And so this was an amazing, difficult, trying time But we believe that God works together for good, to all things together for good to those that love him. Don't you believe that? Amen. Thank you for that. This morning I want to talk to you, a message that I felt the Lord laid on my heart. But before I do, I want to welcome Phyllis Applewhite back from Saudi Arabia. Would you stand, Phyllis, please?
Hallelujah. Phyllis, you are loved. Phyllis is a, a retiring person. She doesn't really like all of this notoriety, but some things you just have to put up with in a body, don't you? <laughs> Amen. As I was praying over this service and this time, the Lord spoke to my heart to deviate from our normal discipling messages and uh, body growth message and, and speak directly to an issue that I felt there would be people here today that would especially need the message of being born again. And those of you who have had the experience of the new birth, uh, this will help you, I'm sure. And, and encourage you and also help you explain this uh, experience to other people. But if you've never had uh, an experience with the Lord that, you can, that you're really sure of, and you've never walked with God the way we talk about here, uh, this message is especially for you, not to embarrass you, but to present the simplicity and yet the, the profoundness of the gospel to you this morning. But so that we can hear and understand, we need to pray and ask the Lord's blessing and His help that that spirit of, of revelation would hover over us. Would you pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, open our hearts to your word. Grant us the ability to speak and hear this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in an, a very unusual time. It's a time when there is a lot of gospel going forth on in, in public ways, uh, Tucson is privileged to have two radio stations that proclaim the gospel. Uh, actually, three now radio stations that are proclaiming the gospel in various styles of music and various uh, uh, methods. And then there is the, the, the television channel that comes from Phoenix. And those of you who have cable will have the family channel on that. And it will have uh, many, many Christian talk shows and presentations of the gospel, but even though it's presented in that manner, the world doesn't understand what's happening. And that lack of understanding is amazing to me, seeing all the evidence and all the great messages and portrayals and, and all the literature that has been written. The witness that God has left of himself in the world is, is astounding, and it's, it's the, the cumulative amount of information is also striking when you think of it. So we live in a time when there is much confusion regarding the truth of the gospel in spite of all of this proclamation. It seems that the media has particularly targeted evangelical ministry as fair game for ridicule and for mockery. Uh, the soaps are full of scenes of ministers who have compromised and walked away from God and are either involved in some sort of a money-grabbing thing or else... Uh, are portrayed as immoral themselves. And it, it, it irks me when I see this, not that there aren't occasions when these things happen. There are occasions when good men fall, and there are occasions where men are involved in ministry that don't even know the Lord at all. But it isn't as widespread as it's being depicted, and I guess that's what bothers me. In fact, today it's chick, it's cool, it's in, whatever the latest word is, it's rad, whatever it is, I don't know what the word is. To laugh at the televangelist or the Bible-thumping preacher. I have a lot of fun around town when I'm doing business or whatever and people want to know what I'm doing or what I am. And I tell them, not that I'm pastor of Grace Chapel, but I tell them I am a radio preacher. And you should see the double take that they get as they look at me and 
try to figure me out. In fact, most of the comedians of our day wouldn't feel that they had really done justice to comedy if they didn't include in their routine some slap at a preacher or a Christian or a born-again person. Christians are becoming, in fact, the only minority in the U.S. where anything can be said or done against them and nobody seems to care. We were... I was talking about objectivity in the press and, and also in schools. And what's amazing to me is that Jesus has touched more lives and made more change in history more than any other man. The effect of Jesus upon the world. And there isn't one history lesson in your schools about him. And if that wasn't enough, Moses, who brought in the law of God, upon which the American justice system is totally based upon the Ten Commandments and upon the laws that Moses wrote, there isn't one school that will give you a lesson on the life of Moses. Not even the university. And yet those same universities will teach yoga and transcendental meditation and all kinds of Far Eastern religions and thought. It's amazing, and yet it's called objective. Uh, during this week, one of the news people that were here at the church were asked by someone, I don't know who it was, but I was told this, that they were saying, why won't you report the testimony, the spiritual testimony of George and Debbie as the reasons behind their lifestyle? And the media person that was here said that this simply was not considered news. It's astounding, isn't it? So an objective press loses all objectivity when it has to do with spiritual things. Did you know that what is happening in Europe, the freedom chants that are going on in Europe, you know what's at the base of it? The people are asking for God. And the major cry in those nations is, we want you to come and tell us about Jesus, and the press will not pick it up. But it's there. Yet, on the other hand, most of the bizarre and extreme cults are portrayed openly. And they're displayed. And sometimes there is legitimate, or there is linkage to legitimate ministries that we have no defense for. I remember when Geraldo did uh, an, a, uh, an account last year of one of the church groups in Arizona that that parents were having a hard time because the kids were becoming so radical that, that the parents were becoming angry at their life change and there seemed to be some pressure on them for um, what they what they call it uh, clearing up their minds or they were being brainwashed they called it and so this was being investigated and exposed and there might have been some truth in some places that this ministry was involved in some radical things and certainly the ministry was not our particular style of ministry, but uh, at the end of the program of Geraldo on national television, I mean, here it's going across the country, they had churches that they felt were similar and to be, care be careful for, and there in the finals came Grace Chapel's name, right there, on the television set. I said, good gravy. Nobody asked, nobody called, nobody investigated, nobody checked. And yet that's called objective. You know that these things are spiritual when, that, when you see that. But there's something, the issue's not the issue. 
There's an issue behind the issue that dwells in darkness. It's good that you and I can see in the dark sometimes, isn't it? That the Lord lets us see through that darkness. But why is being born again so controversial? Why is it that after 2,000 years of the first time that Jesus preached this word that has been picked up over and over again by messengers of the gospel ever since then, why is it when there can be... Uh, maybe in the United States, 40 million people to 60 million people that confess the born-again experience, why is it still so strange to the average person? Why is it they just can't understand it? Why do they think this is weird or strange or odd or, or out of the ordinary? It's not a new issue. In fact, great men and women all over the world today, some of our greatest leaders confess to being born again and had an experience of salvation with God. They confess Jesus openly. Um, people like President Carter, athletes from runners, gymnasts, Olympians, college, All-Americans, football players, basketball players, coaches. Some of the finest coaches have given their testimony of the gospel of Christ. Police chiefs, governors, um, athletes from runners to boxers, all have taken their chance to talk about Jesus when people ask about their lives. And yet... People don't understand it. They talk about surrendering their lives and having that relationship with Jesus that changed them. The problem is that most people just do not understand what they're talking about. Neither do they investigate. Now let me explain the new birth experience and how it happened in the lives of three people that are written in your Bible. Three different men whose stories are found very briefly but very powerfully in the pages of scripture. One was a lawyer and one was a thief and the other was a soldier. John 3 tells us the story of the lawyer. His name was Nicodemus. I'd like you to read it with me and then we're going to make some comments about it. Chapter 3 and verse 1 of John. I like to read John because his gospel doesn't just tell us the sermon titles and what Jesus did but he gives us intimate details of personal conversations that Jesus had with people. And uh, how they responded and how he responded so individually with them. One of the things you find about Jesus, he didn't give people pat answers. He didn't just give them a, a written tract and hand it to them and say, this is the way it goes. He, he met them where they were and spoke to them to the heart. And this man, Nicodemus, was no different. This was a man who was theologically trained, a man who was aware, a man who was very religious. Notice what it said. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. The Pharisees were the strongest and most Bible-believing, miracle-teaching, conservative, whatever you want to call it, Bible-believers of the day. They had impeccable customs of, of virtue. They were givers. They were prayers. They were fasters. They were all of those things that we believe in today. And this man was of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. This would be like being a part of the Supreme Court of Arizona. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, 
I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Ah, a clue. No one can, what? See the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Isn't it amazing how Jesus sidestepped his um, Nicodemus's kind of uh, frothy, uh, flowery introduction and got to the heart of the matter? While he had Nicodemus's attention, he said, "You cannot see the kingdom." Now, the kingdom of God is not a place, even though the kingdom of God will be all places someday. The kingdom of God is a form of government. It's the way people, it's the way things are governed. If you're American, you're governed by democratic law. But if you belong to Jesus, you've laid down your own rights and you're governed by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit sets up His rulership within you. Kingdom is a form of governing. And so he said to him, you can't see this unless you're born again. Nicodemus responded, How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Notice, has to be born of water and of the Spirit or he cannot enter this rulership, this kingdom of God. You should not be surprised at what I'm saying. You must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you speak? How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So we can see clues as to why people cannot see or enter, because it takes an experience that Jesus called being born again. Well, let's just think a little bit about this man. Surely, you would think that a man like Nicodemus would have been saved. <laughs> if ever position or effort would have saved a man, Nicodemus would have been saved. Because from a child, he had been diligent in keeping laws and regulations and rules. His life had been exemplary. He had studied. He probably had what we would call his Ph.D., his doctorate. And he had been accepted and into the political system, had received enough votes and enough confidence from people to finally attain to one of the highest positions that a layman could have in Israeli justice and law. But that didn't save him. He had the right family lineage. 
but that didn't save him. He was extremely educated in the Bible, but that didn't save him. He was accepted by his peers. He was very religious. He was a man of prayer. He was a giver. That did not save him. He was wealthy. He was good. But Nicodemus was not saved, and therefore he could not understand what Jesus was saying. I want to talk to you about what Jesus meant when he talked about the new birth. You see, he said you must be born of water and of the Spirit. And modern day teachers mostly say that this water is baptism. Or maybe it's a, a, a speaking of the Word of God because he calls us being washed by the water of the Word in one place so that symbolically maybe he's talking about being born of the Word. And certainly there is a case to believe that because uh, Peter says that we're born of the seed of the Word. But I, think, I see the seed as not being the birth process but the the uh, conception of the new birth. But instead, I think Jesus was speaking very simple language because all people in those days considered that to be born uh, as a human being, to be born into life, was being born in water. Because they knew that the baby was formed in a sack of water. And they knew that its life up until then was totally encased and contained in water. Whether we like it or not, most of us lived almost like polywalks for a long time. And it wasn't until the birth time came and the correct time came and the water sack broke and lubricated the passage and enabled this for the mother to expel through the birth process the child into another dimension of life. All the time this baby is in the womb, it has faculties that are destined for another way of life but are not usable in that realm that it is in while it's in the womb. As eyes. But they can't focus or see. It has ears that can only hear vaguely. It has feet that can't walk. It has hands that will someday be destined to work and to play. But it can't use them. Only limited in the womb. It has vocal cords to cry and to sing, to speak. can't use them. It has sense of smell, but it can't smell. And that's much like a person who has not been born of the Spirit. They have God-given faculties that are resident in their life that were given to them to enable them to commune with God and to hear His Word and to sense His Spirit and to walk with Him and to relate to Him. But in the unbelieving, self-centered lifestyle without Jesus, they're like that baby in the womb. They have them, but they're not usable. Until when a baby is born, one of the first things that happens, and for some reason, uh, wanting to cry, doctors and Mamas for years have spanked little babies. It's terrible to be spanked the first thing that happens to you. And this baby comes out and gets swatted on the seat and it grabs for air. And, and that first response is a cry. Even so, when the Holy Spirit begins to deal with a heart and that heart responds in a cry unto God. And just as those lungs fill with air and the whole life has been changed now, 
It was alive before, but it was totally dependent upon the umbilical cord. And now, for the first time, it has broken free from that and is separate from its mother, and it now is a living soul, a living being that has its own opportunity. Now those eyes can see better, not as good as they will see, but they can see, can hear things clearer. Its vocal cords can be used. Its hands and its feet begin to move. Its lungs begin to fill with air. And so it is when a person believes in Jesus and they cry out because of that belief unto God and cry unto Jesus as Lord. Their spiritual being is filled with the presence of God and for the first time in their life they begin to live in relationship to Him that they never had before. It's a powerful type. It's a powerful explanation of what goes on when a person moves from the dimension of spiritual deadness, from the dimension of spiritual blindness that can't see the kingdom, that can't enter the kingdom, and by the Spirit of God is brought into a place of connection and relationship with God that happens because of Jesus. So Nicodemus learned that there was more than turning over a new leaf, more than learning a new doctrine, more than adding to his life necessary. There needed to be a touch from God that would open him spiritually into a new dimension of living. And so, that message of Jesus, you must be born again. The next story we have is about a thief. His story is found in the Gospel of Luke. Um, I believe it's 22, verses 32 through 43, but we won't read it. We don't even know this man's name. Only that he was one of the two thieves that were crucified together with Jesus. The fact that he was guilty is captured in his own words, as Luke heard him say as he argued with the other thief about who Jesus was. And he admits his guilt, that he was indeed guilty of sin. But at the same time, having gone through court and the process of law, he looks at Jesus, and this man, even though condemned to die, is able to see past the humanness of Jesus, and past the pain and the agony that he was suffering. And he was able to see... Jesus as the Lamb of God because he cries out to Jesus in verse 42 and he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So now here's a man who's totally botched up and lost and lose, lost all the opportunities of his life. And life has been taken from him. And in his last few hours of life, he has the audacity, if you please, the boldness to cry out in his faith. And the response was instant. Can you realize the pain and the agony that it took Jesus to give this man this assurance? It would have been just a few minutes or hours before this man died to fill his lungs with air to tell this story this man to give him this counsel Jesus had to pull on the nails in his hands and push with his feet to fill his lungs to tell this man 
Today you'll be with me in paradise. Amazing story. It's a capturing story. But this man, unlike Nicodemus, was, as far as the world concerned, worthless. And yet, when he would just call out in faith, he was saved. No, he was not taken down off the cross. No, he was not given a reprieve in his sentence. No, he was not set free by human courts. He died. But that day, he met Jesus in paradise. That day. Amazing story. It's just astounding, the grace of God. It's just startling when you think of it. Finally, there was another man. And uh, in Acts chapter 10, we'll read this story because it's such a, a, an amazing miracle story. It's, a, it's where God does miracles, does the impossible possible with impossible situations. And this man is a soldier. He's a good soldier, but he's not a Jew, and he's not, not even of the nationality of the Jews. And this man had a, a life of hunger for God, even though he was in the armed forces, that caused the Lord to take notice of him. I want you to notice the experiences at Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is a town outside of today Tel Aviv that we called scripturally is called Joppa. It's about 30 or 40 miles. It's on the Mediterranean Ocean and it was a Roman garrison that was set up and had become a city around the garrison. This is one of the places where Paul was in prison for a while. And this centurion, this soldier, was stationed at Caesarea. Now listen, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. This is an amazing story. Because surely if anybody could be saved, this guy had it. He was a centurion. He's an officer in the Roman army in command of his soldiers. Both he and all his family, the Bible says, were devout. They were not only devout, they were God-fearing. That means that they'd come from Rome and upon hearing the, the word of God in the Jewish faith had begun to fear the God of Israel. And not only was he devout and God-fearing, he gave generously a vision. So here's a, a, a devout, praying, giving, God-fearing man. And yet he's not saved. Here is a man who has a vision. And the angel comes to him and says, Your prayers and your gifts have come up before a memorial before God. But still, even though his good works had come before God for a sign, the response was not, now I accept you in salvation. The response was, send to Joppa for a man called Peter 
And as the King James says, he shall speak words to you whereby So all of this goodness, all of this human effort didn't purchase his salvation. Didn't get it. So then the Lord has to do something to Peter because the Jews at that time didn't believe, the Jewish Christians, new church, didn't believe that anybody but a Jew could accept Jesus and be saved. They felt that for a person to receive the Lord, they had to first come and be a Jew, be circumcised, take the, the temple, whatever it was, go through the, all of the, uh, the, the religious practices of the Jews, and then they could become Christians and believe in Jesus. But now, here was Peter, down in Joppa, some miles away, closer than Jerusalem, though. And he was resting, and while he was resting on top of the house, he got very hungry and asked the ladies to fix him something to eat. And... In those days, they didn't have microwaves. So he was up there waiting while they prepared and while they got things ready. And while he was doing that, he went into kind of like a trance-like sleep. And the Bible says that there was a dream given to him three times about a, a, a tablecloth that was let down and in it were all kinds of animals that were to him unclean to eat as a Jew. The Jewish regulation was they couldn't eat anything that didn't have a cloven tongue and chewed its cud. So they couldn't eat pigs. They couldn't eat any fish that didn't have scales on it. So they couldn't eat lobster and shrimp and things like that that you and I like. They couldn't eat anything of that sort. And these were the animals that were let down. And every time he would, he would see the, the, the blanket let down or the tablecloth, I call it, let down, uh, the voice would come, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he would say, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. And the answer was, don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. Boy, there's a message in that, isn't there? Don't you say something's unclean if I've cleansed it. Three times this happened to Peter. And then the third time the mantle was taken away from him, and a word came to him and says, there are people waiting for you at the door. Go with them and don't ask any questions. And so with that dream and that word from God, just then the soldiers and the servants were at the door and they knock. And Peter, knowing that he was in for some change of something, he took some people from the local church with him so that he would have witnesses to what went on. And he takes off. Now, if we look in verse 24... It says, the following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. Notice, there is no salvation in reverencing the apostle. The church cannot save us. The church didn't die for you. The church didn't shed its blood for your sins. The church are those who congregate and who come to Jesus and those who have been redeemed by his personal touch in their lives. Peter would not let him bow or fall at his feet. He said, stand up, I'm a man. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. 
May I ask what you sent me for? Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea, so I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Well, I could say surely a devout, God-fearing, generous, praying man who had seen a vision was saved. But he wasn't. Even though these things caused God to reach out to him, these things did not save him. No, the angel commanded that Peter, a man, come. He didn't even let the angel give him the message. God had ordained that through the foolishness of preaching, man should be saved. Why does the world think it's foolish? Because it's not man's way. God said, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above yours. We would have invented some other plan. But God invented and came up with the only plan that could save a man. So Cornelius sent his messengers, and they find Peter, as the angel said, and they come down, and Peter begins to speak. I want you to notice in verse 30 and 33 what happened. Verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And then he goes on and he begins to speak to them. An amazing thing happens. Verse 44, while Peter was yet speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been outpoured even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Listen to what happened. As Peter spoke to them, that simple message is not deeply theological. We don't even know how long it was taking. He was just saying we are witnesses of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and we recognize him as our Lord. And as those words struck their hearts, there was a response of faith in them. And God responded to their faith with a demonstration of personal baptism in the Holy Spirit. They weren't even done. They weren't even into their meeting when it was already there because Cornelius was ready to believe. What was the key? It was this foolishness of preaching. So powerful was the experience that they broke out in praises and in spiritual languages which Peter understood to be the same thing that had happened to them on the day of Pentecost. He commands them to be baptized and to be brought into the church and to become part of what the Lord wanted. You see, the issue was not how good they are, but could they believe in Jesus and the work he had done for them. Paul the Apostle taught the Ephesian church, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It was hearing 
and believing the gospel that Cornelius found the power to change his life. It was through the simple act of believing God, believing the Spirit of the Lord as he spoke of the word in his heart, the ability to hear the message of the Lord through the message of Peter, and to respond to that in an act of faith. And this is still God's way to save today. It's no different. Paul would talk about the way people would poke fun in and ridicule it at him for preaching. And especially when he got around philosophers or educated people, they seemed to have problem with the preacher. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. So the power of God for salvation is contained in that message of the gospel. It doesn't have to come from a preacher. It comes from anyone who begins to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit merges with that message and touches the heart and the spirit. And if they respond in a decision to believe and to surrender their lives to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit does a personal work of bringing them into relationship and into touch with God. And that's what Jesus called being born again. I've had some absolutely astounding examples of that here. There's a guy in our church that he doesn't come regularly. He's a very busy man, uh, pulled away from town a lot. But he comes as often as he can. The first time I heard from him was in a letter form. He didn't know quite how to take the letter. The next time was in person. The thing about the power of the gospel is, is the gospel works even when it comes through a tape recorder. It's amazing that a videotape or a tape recording, when they hear that word, that the Holy Spirit jumps right on the tape recording. I, I don't know how that works, but there's something extremely powerful. For a long time I was really skeptical of the tapes because I thought the anointing was, was somehow involved in that meeting and it couldn't go in the tape. I mean, how? I don't know. But one of the things we do here at Grace Chapel to make it easy on me and to take advantage of the open door we have on the radio uh, is that the guys take my messages and they listen to them and they take parts out of them and they put them down into a 25-minute time point and they put them on the radio to speak. And if that's not bad enough, they do this all at high speed. So, I mean, they're listening to me going, and they're just putting that together. I don't know how they listen to that, but that's what they're doing up there during the week. They're listening to that, putting it in a 29-minute message, and that's what you hear coming out the radio. So I never know what's even on the radio because they're taking the tapes from the services and making these, these things out of them. Well, this guy, Bob, was... One of those guys who had gotten very educated and was very mad at religion. And so he was listening to KVOI to find out what was my scam. He was wanting to know the scam. He was going to blow the whistle on me. It's amazing. And so he's listening to this radio station driving into the airport while all the time he has his uh, suicide note written just in case the day goes bad. But he's listening with anger, so forth, to me. 
And while he's listening to that, he started crying. He couldn't figure out what he was, why was he crying? What am I crying about? What's going on here? But there was something over the program that was doing things to his insides that were so bitter and so torn up. So he wrote me about it. And then a few days later, I was walking out of the church and the guy was sitting on the last row about four people over in this side. And he waved at me. He says, come on over here. And I says, what is it? Here's this great big man, over 250 pounds, big, burly guy, strong man. He's sitting there, tears running down his cheeks. And he's shaking and he's saying, what am I doing? Am I being born again? He says, <laughs> am I being born again? Is this what that means? <laughs> and he began to explain to me. And I just asked him, was he believing in Jesus? He says, yeah, I do. He says, it's obvious that you... And this man has found the Lord. And now for 10 years, he has written me. Every year on his spiritual birthday, he sends me a birthday card. <laughs> and the thing was, you see, it, it wasn't anything but the Word of God. And his uh, response, his meekness to when God spoke to him to listen and to respond that totally transformed his life, totally transformed his family and his business, and made what we call a Christian out of him. See, you're not a Christian because your parents were Christian. You're not a Christian because you have your name on a church roll. Not even Grace Chapel can save you. Sorry to say, I wish it could. There isn't enough power, as one guy says, in this whole church together to heal a mosquito of a headache <laughs> in ourselves it's not there but yet resident within us that have allowed Jesus to come into our lives is enough power to turn the world around and he has turned our world around he has made us different you see it isn't these things that save you Paul said he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. I don't care if they mock. I don't care if they ridicule us. Really, it doesn't bother me that much. I wish they didn't. It's sometimes a little embarrassing. And I get embarrassed at some of the stuff that goes on in the church. I wish some of the preachers wouldn't be so weird. I, didn't, I, I don't see my own weirdness, so it doesn't bother me what I do. But some Christians bother me. Don't they bother you, some of them, that go on? And they pick it up and they make a big deal of it. But behind all of that, the gospel still is the power of God and salvation. And in a lot of that weirdness, and a lot of people's ineptness, they still are preaching the word. And Paul said that he was glad when the word was preached, even if people did it to give him trouble. I know of instances in this city, one of the most loved ministers of this church sat under an unbelieving pastor as he read the scripture and found Jesus. Because the power is in the word of God. And the release of that power is when you and I respond in faith. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me?
I'm not ashamed when the media scorns or when the comedians mock because I know the power of God's word to turn lives around because Jesus still saves men and women today through his word. He doesn't save green stamps as some of the hippies said. He saves every man, woman, boy and girl that will turn to him and hear him and respond to him. In the early service I... I just finished right here and I, and I just said if you want to find Jesus come and we'll be here and one of the brothers came up afterwards and you know they would like me to be more forceful in the altar calls the reason I'm not real forceful in altar call is because I didn't, don't see a lot of altar calls in scripture but I see that God really does leave the decision to us and that we many times pressure people to do something before they're ready and it makes it not as strong in their life but that's just a uh, feeling that I have. Uh, I usually like to have someone do a strong altar call because I'm not a really good closer in any time of selling that I do. However, this man brought a scripture to my mind afterwards. He says, remember what the word says, that if men will confess me before men, I will confess them before my Father which is in heaven. You know, there's something so powerful about you taking a step to receive Jesus or raising your hand. Anything you can do as a public confession that you believe in Jesus causes heaven to react to your confession. So even though I might not be forceful in that altar call, let's don't overlook the fact that if you want Jesus and if you want to know what being born again is, a step on your part will be matched by Jesus himself. Father, we come to you now in your name. We ask that your Holy Spirit would hold and comfort and convict every man and woman who doesn't know you today or who doubts or who is unsure that the Holy Spirit would bring them now to yourself cause them to make a step of faith. We thank you for it. Staff, can you come? Can I ask those who would like to step out and meet Jesus as we're dismissed to come and let the staff and different ones pray with you? Prayer group leaders, uh, home group leaders, come and make yourself available for just a few minutes for those who otherwise would be hesitant to come.